Well, good morning. Uh, as Nathan said, my name is Bert Rowert. I'm one of the elders here, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to uh, preach with you this morning. Um, it's the first time here at New Life, and I guess the thing I'm most nervous about is this microphone, so hopefully it cooperates with me as I see people struggle with it week after week. Uh, it's been great to to hear from so many people in the church this summer, Mike, Enho, Greg Beach, Greg Chandler, Nathan, and, and I am thankful to be able to join them. Also, before we get started, I see a lot of the kids have it, but there are clipboards in the back with some things to work on while we're talking today. But I'll try to engage with the kids as well. So this summer, our sermons are focusing on Jesus' parables. A parable is a story that's not necessarily real, but it teaches a lesson. They often use similes and metaphors. Things uh, They'll start out often like, the kingdom of God is like. Many of them are used to shine a light on the shortcomings of the Pharisees and elders at the time. We'll see one of those today. Uh, and many of them reinforce the message to us that we should love our neighbors as ourselves and love the Lord uh, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll see one of those today, too. Why did Jesus use parables? He does this to grant understanding and reveal truth to those who are seeking after him, those who carefully consider what he has to say, and those who are opposed to him will claim they don't really know what he's talking about with these parables sometimes. So this is what Jesus says in Matthew. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Uh, may that be so of us as we study many of these parables this summer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day and this body of people gathered because of you. Your love reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the sky. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. So often we fall short, and so we come to you asking you to make us more like you. Let each of us glean from your word the lessons you have for us today. Amen. So let's start today with the parable of the two sons. This is in Matthew, and before we get started, uh, I just have a request from one of my sons. Uh, Matthew, could you get me some water? Huh, okay. <laughs> Levi, could you get me one of the Bibles from the table in the back, please? Okay. So let's read the parable. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Uh, 
I want to ask the, the kids here. Uh, there aren't very many today, so you'll have to speak up when I ask you. Who, in this son, did either son, uh, in this story, did either son act perfectly? No, not really. Who thinks the first son did what his father wanted? Can you raise your hand? A few hands, okay. Who thinks the second son, uh, the one that said yes, uh, but then didn't follow through? Who thinks the second son did what his father wanted? Anybody think that? Well, good. You get, what's that, Joel? He gets no votes. That's, that's a little humbling to me because I remember as a kid growing up being quite confused by this story. Um, both sons did something wrong, right? Um, uh, Jesus, uh, and Jesus doesn't tell the crowd that they're right or they're wrong. In fact, he seems to criticize them because of their answer, right? And so I remember as a kid, you know, I didn't like multiple choice questions either. Uh, where there's one best answer, but I could see an argument for other ones. You know, you can see an argument for either kid here did something right, something wrong, what's going on? So, um, but there's definitely a right answer to Jesus' question, so let's try to understand the situation better. So let's go to the, the table. So as a teacher, I thought I'd have a visible, vis- visual here. <coughs> uh, so we had a few options. We only had two sons, but there were really, I guess, four ways this could have played out, right? Um, there's what they said, and there's what they did. And so across the top, um, uh, we see that um, you know, they could have either not done what the father asked or, or did what he asked, uh, but, and they also could have said they weren't going to do what he asked or said that they were going to do what he asked. And so we have the first son who said no, but, but fa- ended up actually doing what his father asked, and then the, the second son who said yes, but didn't, didn't do it. So we understand the setup. The son said he would not do what his father asked, but did it. And then the other son said he would, uh, would do it, but never actually did. And there could have been maybe two other sons or two other, you know, types in this story. Uh, one could have said he would not do it and then not did it, so been true to his word. Um, and another could have said he would do it and then did it. And that would have been great, right? So which of my sons, I asked Matthew and asked Levi, which of my sons did what I wanted? Anybody notice? Matthew, Matthew yeah. I asked Matthew to get me some water and he said no which might have been a little surprising at first, okay? And I asked Levi to get me a Bible, and he said he would. And I now have water, but I don't have a Bible. (laughs) So after telling the parable, Jesus asks the audience which son did what his father wanted, right? But it's extremely important right now to understand before we go any further, who is in the audience? Who's the audience here, right? Um, This isn't just the general public. This is, um, we need to look back. We'll, we'll see. Let's look back a few verses starting in verse 23. So we were, uh, st- started at verse 28 just a second ago for the parable, but if we go back to the verses, the five verses that lead up to it, we see this. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. But what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question if you answer me. I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. But then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Pastor Nathan spoke about this exchange a couple months ago, just before we began the parables. Does this seem like Jesus and the Pharisees are getting along? 
Not really, right? There's a little bit, it's a little contentious heading into this, the parable that we, we get today. So the audience for the parable of the two sons is the Pharisees and the elders. And the situation is already confrontation, confrontational before Jesus even tells the parable. So let's go on again back to the parable. The audience, that is the chief priests and the elders, gave the correct answer. And Jesus didn't say that, but uh, you can get it from the context now. They gave the correct answer. The son who said no, but actually did what his father asked, is the right answer. That's, that's the one. Jesus doesn't praise the Pharisees and elders for answering correctly about the two sons, even though they were right. And this is because the parable is directly addressing their failures to do what God wanted. They're being compared to the second son, saying the right things about God, but doing the wrong things. By filling the roles they fill, they're claiming a willingness to lead people to God and bring about his kingdom, but instead, with their harsh rules, uh, the people were discouraged and even oppressed. In fact, these Pharisees and elders did not believe John the Baptist, a prophet who told people that the Messiah was coming, and they therefore deny that Jesus is the Messiah. On the other hand, God is more pleased with the prostitutes and tax collectors. They've in the past disobeyed God, living lives of greed and immorality. However, they believed John the Baptist and began to repent, entering the kingdom of God. And even the when the Pharisees and elders saw the prostitutes and tax collectors changing their behavior, they did not change their own. How'd the Pharisees know the first son was the one who did what his father wanted? Uh, maybe it was common sense, like it was to all the kids here today. Um, but if they understood Jesus' deeper meaning of this parable, and I think they did, it's because they understood the Old Testament scriptures. Let's go back and look at one place in Ezekiel. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they have done, they will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things that the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. The Pharisees and elders likely knew of this passage and others like it. It was clearly teaching the same lesson as our present parable. What matters to God is not what we did in the past, but the present state of our heart towards him and the people around us. Given the context for this passage, Ezekiel is really, uh, that passage is there to help the Israelites see how to avoid physical death at the hands of the Babylonians. Presumably, if they were to repent and keep the Lord's commands, he would deliver them from imminent Babylonian invasion. It isn't necessarily about eternity, but about whether or not they would suffer God's discipline. The Pharisees and elders, as audience of the parable of the two sons, are also receiving God's discipline. In part, this is happening by them being publicly called out by Jesus. But their position is also being threatened as people uh, around them align with Jesus and not so much with these leaders. And that seems to be what's really bothering them. So which type of parable is this? One that shines a light on the shortcomings of the Pharisees? Uh, yes, it's definitely that. Uh, but is it one that reminds us to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors, uh, and love our neighbors as ourselves, 
less directly so, but, but probably that too. So for us today, though, this one can remind us to constantly evaluate our lives in terms of obedience to God. We know what God wants us to do by uh, regularly studying scripture, praying, uh, and listening to God in other ways. Is something in scripture difficult to accept? It may indicate a place where we're out of obedience. Pride can keep us from full obedience too if, we're, if we realize we're disobedient and our first reaction is to defend ourselves or dig in um, and try to justify what we're doing. We risk following the Pharisees and Jewish elders to the back of the line of those entering the kingdom of God. This parable can also remind us to be careful about how we act when in positions of legitimate or even perceived authority. In these cases, we need to be extra careful that our actions and judgments do not keep others from God. So let's constantly strive toward righteousness out of love for Jesus and thankfulness for his love demonstrated for us by his sacrifice on the cross. So I'm doing two parables, as I mentioned, so I'll switch to the next one. Let's look at the rich fool. I'm going to start with a multiple-choice question for the kids because uh, I don't want to embarrass the rest of us. Which is wiser? We have person A and person B. Person A is a person who was poor, and they gave to their church their last $2, and they had nothing left to live on. Person B had a successful farming business, so they decided to build bigger barns to hold all of their grain. This person stored up for years of grain so they could take it easy for the rest of their life. So, okay, which is wiser? Who says A is wiser? No hands there. Okay, how about B? Anybody for B? A few hands for B. Oh, somebody changed their vote to A, but it looks like most B has the majority on this one. Okay, so let's read two more scripture passages. Let's go to the first one, Mark 12, uh, 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So Jesus definitely has good things to say about, about this person, this widow. Um, she put more into the treasury than all the others, and it was all she had to live on. This is absolutely radical to our thinking today. She wanted to give something to God because she knew he provides what she needs. She proved that she did not put any faith in money by not keeping any of it. So let's read the second passage, which is the second parable for the day. The rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This man seems to have accomplished the financial success that all of us is trying to accomplish. This is the American dream, right? It's important to note that the parable does not say he did anything dishonest or immoral to achieve his success. He seems to be on his way to financial independence, but independence from what? There are places the Bible seems to encourage uh, saving money and storing up for when hard times come. 
So I got some a couple of passages we'll look at here, and I'm looking for some help. So I got I'm gonna go out. Asher, would you be willing to read the first one? The plans of the diligent led to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. All right, thank you. You want to read? The wise store up choice food in olive oil, but fools gulp down theirs. Thank you. So it seems like there's some, you know, credit given for being saving ahead, being prudent with your money. And remember, there's the story of Joseph leading Egypt through a seven-year famine by saving during seven years beforehand. But the man in the parable is a fool according to God. So where did he go wrong? Let's go back to the passage. At least to me, what jumped out first was what happens in verse 19. He says to himself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Or that's what he plans to say to himself. Uh, he's planning to amass enormous amounts of grain, years worth. And if we look back even to verse 18, he seems obsessed with his goal. Rather than sharing his surplus with others or God, he preoccupies himself with achieving complete financial independence. He's putting his faith in his surplus grain to get him through any possible contingency for many years. And he seems to not acknowledge the true source of his abundance. So we should not do that. Let us not focus all our time energy, time and energy on the goal of financial independence. Instead, we should focus on our dependence on God. God ascribes money approximately zero value. Think about the time he was asked whether or not it is right to pay taxes. This was, you know, maybe a politically charged question at the time, as it would be today, but it's also about people who want to hoard money. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus is saying that he doesn't really care what we do with politics or money. Those are not really his concern. He transcends both of those. He wants our time and energy. He wants us to return our lives, which are a gift from God, back to God. The coins had Caesar's image on them, and of course, we are made in God's image. And in fact, today's parable seems to be delivering a similar message. Let's look at the first three verses again. The two brothers are arguing about an inheritance, and that would be very relatable even today, right? That's, that's extremely common. And Jesus' response is kind of shocking to me. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Isn't Jesus the judge? He's the ultimate judge who decides where we spend eternity. But I think a major point here is he is communicating that he cares way more about how we care for others and how we work for his kingdom than he does about what happens with our money. So if Jesus doesn't care about money or doesn't ascribe value to it, why does he praise the widow for giving? Because she demonstrated her total dependence on God and not on money. And that's the point. And even if Jesus doesn't value money, he knows that we do. This is why uh, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can't bring money with us when we die. So how can we store up treasures in heaven? How can we give back to God what is God's? Remember that God sees our generosity toward the least of these as generosity toward him. This can take the form of money, but also time and effort. We could probably have several series of sermons on how to deal with money, and we can't address it all today, and, and I struggle with it as much as anyone else uh, here. So we can return to the question then, which is wiser? The person who gave their last two dollars, 
or the person who built the bigger barns to store up their excess grain for years to come. Well, the opposite of wisdom is folly, and God calls the rich farmer a fool. So is it really wise to give God everything we have and disregard the basic needs of our spouse and ourselves? God honors the widow for doing it, and he tells a different rich guy, the rich young ruler, to sell everything he has and give to the poor. He calls the rich farmer a fool for focusing on financial independence and not on God. But in all these cases, I believe Jesus is making a point about where our faith should lie. If we get down to $2, should we trust in an investment strategy with those $2 to get us out of trouble or the Lord uh, as the widow did? Are our possessions so valuable to us that we would give up following Jesus in order to keep them like the rich young ruler did? Does the pursuit of financial independence consume us, pushing out time and energy spent, pursuing obedience to God? Realistically, we need to use our money, but we need to keep it as more of a servant than a master. Money is a tool that we can use when we need it, but we should not devote our lives to pursuing it in a way that reduces our caring for one another and pursuing the kingdom of God. So yes, if possible, let us manage the money we have wisely so that our families and our neighbors have what they need. However, we must not become obsessed with constantly gaining more. We'll never actually achieve financial independence because we're totally dependent on God for all we have. It's an illusion. Pursuing financial independence is a waste of time. It's impossible. This is one of those parables that encourages us to love the Lord with all we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. These parables are extremely rich stories. They're a gift along with all of Scripture. And let's thank God for them as we continue to learn from them through the rest of this series. Let's pray. Jesus, we're in awe of your teaching. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. These parables teach, convict, and encourage us from every angle. Every time we look at them, we find something new. They're a gift, and we thank you for them. I pray for your blessing on this church and these people. Lord, let us flourish and grow, enriching your kingdom as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.